Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. There is this internet comic that went around a bit after the 2016 election that was just somebody standing in a room and just said, I want things to be different. And there's like this panel kind of whirlwind uh, activity. And then in the third panel, just everything's broken. And the president says, oh, no. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to the Ezra Clench on the Vox Media Podcast Network. My guests today are Stephen Levitsky and Daniel Ziblatt, who are the authors of the new book, How Democracies Die. The year is young yet, but I think this is going to be one of the most important books of 2018. You know, the, the, the public reaction to the book, if you read the reviews about it and you read the commentary about it, it's really been about Trump. And, and, and that's not unfair. The book does have a lot to say about Donald Trump, but that is not by any means the most important part of the book. And so it is not what I have focused on in this discussion with them. Rather, the, the book sort of has three parts. One is a, a part about Donald Trump. That's sort of a little book into itself. And then there is another one on how modern democracies have fallen, uh, how they have fallen across the world and other countries. What are the conditions? What is maybe true about democratic deconsolidation, as it is called, that, that we do not know? Uh, and then the second, and, and I found this really, really interesting, is a re- casting of American democracy, a look at it as less stable on less firm footing than we often think, a look about what has happened to make American democracy vulnerable to a moment like this one. Trump is symptom, not cause of it. Uh, and and so when we look at it, we are, are, are looking at something that is ongoing. I sometimes think about Donald Trump. I'm a comic books reader. In comics, you would sometimes have these storylines where some kind of portal opens to to another dimension or, or, or whatever it might be, and things begin coming through it. Um, he is one of the things that I think has come through the cracks in our political system, but he's not going to be the only thing. He is not the only thing even so far. And so I think we need to do a lot more work to understand what has gone wrong in America's political system, not just what is going on with Donald Trump. Uh, Stephen and Daniel are really good at thinking through that. They have some things in the book that genuinely struck me, that, that in some cases shocked me, even though I study this stuff for a living. So I was glad to get the opportunity to talk with them today. So here, without further ado, is Stephen Levitsky and Daniel Ziblatt, authors of How Democracies Die. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Thanks, Thanks for having us. So I guess I'll begin with the, the obvious question. Um, Stephen, how do democracies die? Well, they die in many ways. One point that we make in the book is that the way that they die has been changing over time, that in the Cold War period in particular, for a good part of the 20th century, the most common way, far and away, for democracies to break down was through a classic military coup, armed men seizing power. And that is much less common. There still are military coups. We saw one in Egypt a few years ago. We saw one in Thailand a few years ago. But a majority of democratic breakdowns since the end of the Cold War have come at the hands of elected leaders themselves, elected presidents or elected prime ministers, who then go on to use the institution of, of democracy to undermine the democratic process. 
So when I was reading the book, one of the things that struck me about it was that as you describe it, it seemed to me that modern democracies don't so much die as they zombify. They don't clearly become something that is not a democracy. In fact, people often end up living in a democracy that is no longer democracy and never knowing it. But 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 that was part of the scary thing about the way you describe this to me, that it is actually often hard to tell if your democracy is dying, in part because the way they are attacked is often wrapped in the language of democracy. Yeah, so that's part of what's new is that it's a kind of slow chipping away of the institutions of democracy, which makes it both difficult for citizens as well as analysts to really get a grip on what's happening. And so a lot, there's always lots of debate um, about, you know, what's really going on. And so, what, you know, so that's why we focus on these specific strategies that authoritarians uh, have used, electoral authoritarians, to try to capture the referees, as we call it. You know, so in other words, turn law enforcement uh, officials and institutions into shields and weapons. This is a kind of gradual process. It takes place over time where, you know, you can force out attorney generals and so on. I mean, this is the kind of thing we've seen in other countries or use judicial institutions in a similar way. So in other words, you know, in Hungary, for instance, one of the things that Viktor Orban did was impose a retirement age, which allowed him to get rid of a bunch of judges and then allowed him then to appoint all of the judges that he wanted to. So that these are the kind of gradual ways that this happens. Institutions such as electoral institutions kind of over time uh, can be tilted in favor of the incumbent. So it gets harder and harder to remove an incumbent from office, although there continue to be elections. So in other words, you know, the, the formal institutions of democracy are still there, but the substance is kind of eviscerated. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? And in, in using, I thought the Venezuela example is really interesting, both in the way that uh, Chavez had people who helped him into power, people who were part of the established democratic norms, and then in the way it, it, it slowly was changed over time so that it still was something that Venezuelans thought was a democracy but was not something that a political scientist studying a democracy would, would, would agree with. Do you, do you want to go through that tale? Sure, and you're absolutely right. It, more than a decade after uh, Chavez had, had come to power and at a time when it was clearly uh, a fairly authoritarian regime, 2011, 2012, a good solid majority of Venezuelans, when asked uh, incredible surveys, said they believed their country was a democracy, said they were they believed they were living in a democracy. So Hugo Chavez was um, freely and fairly elected in 1998, took power in 1999, uh, was a populist. His rhetoric was, was Wait, can scared. you go back mm -hmm. in that story just for a minute? Because sure. I had not realized he had tried to mount a coup before he was freely and fairly elected. He did, six years earlier. So, and, I mean, and, he, and, he fails our litmus test that we have in our book for somebody. He's certainly somebody that the establishment should have watched out for. And the former president of Venezuela then pardoned him. Mm -hmm. Th this was a crazy— I, I, Could you yeah. back into that? Because sure. that's I mean, wild to me. Yeah. I mean, the thing, the thing to know about Venezuela is Venezuela was, a, it was an established democracy, but it was really in severe crisis. Um, mainly, it was, it was a, a petro state whose economy had really gone badly. And the level of public disaffection was sky high, much worse than, than say, the United States. And uh, established parties, established politicians knew that. Uh, but they were particularly shocked to see when, when Hugo Chavez led a coup attempt in 1992 he actually had a lot of support, a lot of public support, especially among the poor who were really suffering under this long, drawn-out economic crisis. And so Venezuelan politicians were shocked to see how much support Chavez had. The coup failed. He was imprisoned. Uh, but Rafael Caldera, who was a um, longtime Democrat, one of the founders of Venezuela's democracy, one of the founders of 
one of Venezuela's two mainstream parties, one of its center-right party, a former president, on the night of the coup attempt, stood up in the Senate and gave a speech in which he publicly sympathized with the, the Chavistas and said, you know, we, we, we don't, we can't endorse their, their means, but we understand where they're coming from. And uh, he did that in part. Uh, he, was, he was an old guy. His career was, had, clearly was sort of on the decline, but he wanted to be president again. And he was looking for a way to sort of regain some public support. And so he attached his, himself to the Chavista rocket. And then he made the decision. There was, when, when Chavez was, was imprisoned, there was a considerable public clamor for his release. And Caldera, now elected president, gave into that. And he gave into it out of miscalculation. He believed at the time that Chavez was a flash in the pan, that by the time the next election came around, Venezuelans would have forgotten about Hugo Chavez. So he miscalculated. He made this sort of this gesture because people were clamoring for his, for his release. He would make some people happy. He let him out of prison, expecting that he would fail politically. And so that was the big miscalculation. But but that seems to be a big part of the story repeatedly. You guys write that um, when when there's abdication of a democracy, right, when the, the, the established parties begin to give it away to some of these outsider forces, that it flows from one of two sources. And one of the ones you say is the misguided belief that an authoritarian can be controlled or tamed, that the, the players who know the system always assume that, that once in office, they will be able to box the, the, the authoritarian in. They'll wrap them in rules and congressional procedure. They'll, the person will lose support of the public, what, whatever it might be. They assume that they're the canny veteran. And then it turns out, to, to steal the line from the watchman, that, that they're actually trapped in there with him. Yeah, that's right. And so we, we recount this story in Venezuela, as Steve just did, but also in Italy and in Germany in the 1920s and 1930s. You want to tell the Germany story? Because yeah. I, I think this is... Look, I know nobody likes Hitler analogies, yeah, yeah, but right. I think it is useful to think about how he came to power, right? Right, that's because right. that's a more normal story. Yeah, so it's 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 you know in some ways analogous to the Venezuelan story. So so Hitler famously in, in the early twenties carried out a beer hall putsch, was arrested. Was What's a, a beer hall putsch? Yeah, so a beer hall putsch. So he you know he, there was a there was a short lived rebellion against the the state government of Munich. And he, he thought this would he thought this would spread to the rest of Germany and this would be a kind of Nazi, but it was Nazi takeover of Germany. But it was it was not very well planned. He didn't have very many people, uh, and he was arrested. Uh, he tried to, they tried to take over a beer hall, and then they were arrested. They were he was put in jail. That's where he then wrote Mein Kampf, and this was kind of the end of Hitler, as far as people thought. This is the 1922, you know, so early in the 1920s, and he kind of disappeared from the scene after that. Um, and through the middle of the 20s, German democracy was quite stable. There, you know, it stabilized to some degree. I mean, there was lots of economic turmoil, but there was two main blocks, the center-right and then the and socialists on the, on the left. And the center-right was trying to cobble together a kind of center-right government, and it could never quite do this. This was a, there was a kind of weak party that had never really – it always wanted to be like the British Tories but never could quite manage it, an aristocratic party. And so beginning in the late 20s, with there was, there was a sign of growing radicalism and disaffection – on the on the far right, this party itself was taken over by a media mogul, uh, and then Alfred Hugenberg was this guy who took over the conservative party and very quickly, you know, had his eye on Hitler and the Nazi movement and started forming alliances with Hitler and had held rallies with him, issued joint proclamations with him, with the hope that this weak conservative party could bolt could get some grassroots appeal. The aristocrats needed some popular appeal. Uh, 
So, you know, they did this and they thought that this was going to help them. But really what ended up happening is the party just continued to disintegrate the center-right party and Hitler continued to skyrocket. And so by the by the early 30s, Hitler was now the leading guy on the right and still facing the same challenge. The conservative statesmen who were still around decided, well, okay, we better try to deal with this. We'll invite him to be chancellor January 1933. And a, a great uh, line that we have in the book when people said, well, is this really such a smart thing to do, uh, von Poppen said, it's okay, we'll have him so far in a corner, he'll soon squeak. Why do you think that miscalculation happens? Why do you think that these institutional players are so often wrong when they look at these charismatic challenges to the system, challenges charismatic enough that they are hitching their star to them, Yeah. but then assume, well, certainly we'll be able to control them when in power? Yeah, it's it's fascinating. I mean, it's a it's a it's a kind of political suicide in a way, and it does repeat itself throughout history. Um, you know, I think you know, it, it's in retrospect, it's certainly easy to see that it's a miscalculation. But I guess politicians all the time are doing this. They're, you know, they have their eye on the horizon. New trends are taking place, and they kind of want to tap into it. And there's a kind of sense, you know, should we really take this here? Let's not overstate the danger. Let's not say the sky is falling. The sky is falling. Let's not overstate the danger. We can we can cope with this. And so, you know, the I guess the, the reason why even at the moment one should have been able to see this is when, when these kinds of figures so clearly are threats to democracy, that's where you have to draw the line, and, you know, and, and just say these guys are threats to democracy. They've, you know, attempted coups in the case of Chavez as well as in, in Germany. And so we need to we need to draw the line. So in that sense, I'm not sympathetic to their to their plight. But on the other hand, you know, politicians are working in incredible moments of uncertainty and crisis, and they're trying to do the best they can. When we look back and tell these stories, we have one-dimensionalized the demagogue, right? When we think of Hugo Chavez, we think of him in America, at least as an authoritarian. We don't think of him as a political program. When we think of Hitler, when we think of Fujimori, we think of them now in terms of what they did to their political systems. But but, but something that, that you write about in the book, and this is the other piece of how established parties end up abdicating, is there is a question of ideological overlap. And if you believe in your program and you're a politician who has devoted your life to your program, right, devoted your life to your ideology, to your agenda, to your policies, you probably believe it's pretty important. And so if you see an opportunity with one of these guys rising to be able to implement the policies you think will make the world a better place, it is not an easy choice. I think this is actually when people talk about what we've been through in this country with the Republican Party and Donald Trump, a way that they downgrade the difficulty of the choice the Republican Party had to make. The people in the Republican Party believe in their agenda in a firm, true way. And so they think that there's a real possible uh, value for the country in, in them being able to implement it. And, and the thing that, that you write is that democracies tend to survive these challenges best when the parties in question are willing to say, yeah, he may represent us more ideologically. There might be more possible uh, common ground there, but we're not going to do it anyway. That seems honestly like a lot to ask of politicians, particularly when they don't know how the story will turn out. It is a lot to ask. It is a lot to ask. Um, and it, it, it requires, obviously, that, um, that first of all, that, that politicians put country first. They put country before party, that they put country before um, their own political ambitions, which is not normal politics. But the point is, and, and this is very difficult because of the level of uncertainty that Daniel mentioned, nobody knows for sure that authoritarianism is coming. Nobody knows for sure how this guy is going to behave in office. There is always some uncertainty. And maybe they're you know, lying to themselves a bit. 
maybe they're a bit arrogant. I think you you got to part of the story is that these are establishment politicians who know their way around the the Congress and the capital city, and they're looking at this outsider and saying, "Come on, he can't he can't take us." So th- there's there's a whole series of calculations being made, um, and because they don't know for sure, I mean, it, presumably, if you knew for sure that this guy was going to bury democracy, you you wouldn't do it, right? But it's an unknown. And uh, so asking a politician to do what is not normal, to put ambition aside and to put defense of something abstract like democracy before political ambition, before ideological ambition is really hard to do. But that said, there are times in history, as we know, looking back at, uh, at Europe in the, in the 20s and 30s, there are times in history where you have to do that. And there are times in history where politicians have done that. Um, and there are times that poli- it, it, Do you want to talk history- about a time like that? Sure. Because um, I think people are not as familiar with the examples of a party not doing what we expect it to do. Two cases in interwar Europe that we write about a bit in the book are Finland and Belgium. I should actually pass the baton to Daniel because he's more of an expert on that. But yeah, yeah. So in Belgium, there was there was a guy who had a march on Brussels, who kind of uh, who thought he was you know wanted to, was this is in the 30s. He w- was tried to imitate um, Mussolini's march on Rome and Hitler, and he and he modeled it. He had some support from Hitler and, and Mussolini, and he was a far he had been a member of the Catholic center right party, but had broken away because he was he had this kind of fascist leaning. He had thought this was the the, the kind of moment was to become a fascist and. Uh, he was doing very well. His party was doing very well. And the, ba- the uh, Belgian Catholic Party was considering forming a coalition with him. I mean, so this is a kind of center-right forming a coalition with a clearly far-right fascist, self-declared fascist. Um, and at the at the very last moment, the king – I mean, this may sound like a very distant case when I describe it this way, but I think there's some lessons in it. The king got all of the leading party politicians together and said, look, at under no conditions can anybody cooperate with this guy. And he had the, the king had the moral authority to convince – convince center-right politicians and socialists and everybody not to, to kind of exclude. And they came up with a strategy for trying to pull away the grassroots away from this party. So, you know, again, you know, there's a king. So, how, you know, what lessons can we draw from this? I think the point here is that there is a, an, a chief executive of the country in, in the form of a king who's taking a stand and, and has the moral authority to, you know, a politician, in effect, political leader with the moral authority to kind of send a message. You know, here we have to draw the line. And, you know, we can contrast us again, I mean, deal, you know, staying in interwar Europe, President von Hindenburg was the executive of that country, and he was one who kind of, you know, very easily kind of said, okay, let's let Hitler on board and, and let Hitler be our chancellor. So, so there's a way in which national political leaders have a responsibility, and that's kind of what we're trying to So there's to. something interesting here that might actually be a good bridge to your discussion of, of American politics and, and American politics pre-Trump, which I think is sort of where I want to focus, which is the king in Belgium at that time is not a polarized political figure. It's not left, not right. Reimagining that story with President Barack Obama calling Mitch McConnell into room and saying, look, this guy running for office this is ridiculous. That would not have worked. <laughs> and, and in fact, even when you deal with things like the, the, the revelations of Russian interference, it was not working in real time in much easier ways than don't support the nominee of your party or don't support somebody who you could form a coalition that would, would, would get you power with. Something that, that you discuss in the book is the way that political polarization is rendering American democracy more vulnerable to breakdown, more vulnerable to failure, more vulnerable to demagogues. Certainly more vulnerable to crisis. I don't think we know much about what form that crisis might take. 
well, well, more vulnerable to crisis. Why does polarization make us more vulnerable to anything? Um, we focus a lot in the book on a couple of, of democratic norms that are absolutely essential to making our constitutional system of checks and balances work. Uh, very quickly, they are what we call mutual toleration, which is a public acceptance or recognition that the other party is a legitimate rival, that we may disagree with them, we may even dislike them, but they love the country, they love the Constitution, and they have an equal legitimate right to run for office and govern if they win. It sucks if they win, but that's that's the game. The second one is what we call, is a little trickier. It's what we call forbearance, which is self-restraint in the exercise of power. It is not fully taking advantage of a legal right that is open to you. And that seems odd and maybe counterintuitive, but think about some of the things that American politicians can legally do. Uh, as you well know, the president can pardon anybody he or she wants at any time. Uh, the president also uh, can pack the Supreme Court. If the president has a majority in Congress, doesn't like the ideological makeup of the Supreme Court, the president can legally expand the court to 11 or 13, fill it with allies, suddenly have a majority. All he or she needs is a majority in Congress to do that. The president, and this is an issue that came up quite a bit with the under the Obama presidency, if he or she is not getting uh, his agenda through Congress, can use different kinds of mechanisms like uh, executive orders, proclamations to essentially govern or implement policy at the margins of Congress. Now think quickly about what Congress can do. Congress can block every single nomination. The Senate can block every single nomination the president makes to the cabinet, to the obviously to the Supreme Court, as we know. Congress can, can as we saw recently, shut down the government, can refuse to fund the government. So if, if, if our political leaders, in, according to this constitution, completely legally, can make our country ungovernable, can make our, our, our system of checks and balances which are so brilliantly designed, can make them completely dysfunctional, if not ridden with crisis. It takes uh, what we call forbearance. It, it takes an agreement among the major politicians that one is not going to use one's institutional prerogatives to the hilt. They're not going to use a filibuster on every bill. They're not going to pardon all of their friends all the time. They're not going to block every single Supreme Court nominee the president has. That kind of restraint is essential to a democratic system. What polarization does is it encourages politicians to abandon forbearance. If the other side is so different from you and uh, has a worldview that is so vastly different, there's, there's a greater, much greater likelihood that you will begin to see your rival as a threat, as a potential enemy, as maybe even existential threat. And when that happens, it's, you, you come under great pressure to abandon forbearance, right? How do you justify not using all the tools available to you when the other guy is a traitor or, or, or a danger to the country? That's what polarization does. So I want to dive into part of the way you tell the story about America that is one of the harder parts of the book to talk about and one of the parts of American history that I think is harder to talk about. But you tell the story of America's political system as in part a story of racial exclusion. And America is founded on racial exclusion, right? The core compromises that construct America 
Uh, we write into the Constitution that African-Americans will be counted as three-fifths of the person. Slavery is, is, is left open. At every point then, when we have major pushes of racial progress, it begins to destroy American democracy. At one point, it leads to a civil war. But it was after reading your book that I was thinking that after the Civil Rights Act, you get Nixon, who is one of the less democratic, small-D democratic presidents we've ever elected. Um, and after President Obama, after the first black president, you have this almost anti, again, small-D democratic successor elected. There is something in the way that American politics has been stabilized by racism, by the agreements between the two parties to, to slow down or stop or halt demographic change and racial progress that made it seem completely predictable that at this moment we would actually be in a tumultuous point in our country. So I recognize that's a bit of a long lead up, but, I, but I'd like to hear you talk through that a bit because I think that is a lens of looking at this. It is important that people do not enjoy using, but reaches further back into our history than, than, we, than we often let on. There's this work by Donald Matthews, who we cite in the book, written in the 1950s by this guy who studied the U.S. Senate. And it's sort of the golden years of the U.S. Senate where everybody treated each other with respect and there was all this deference. And we realized, though, this, this, these golden years, which you know, go back to the 1890s or you know, early 1900s, coincided with the years of racial exclusion in the U.S. South. And so, so we really came to the discovery that these, you know, it's not a coincidence at some level. And so when we think about the end of Reconstruction, which was, Reconstruction was a major democratic experiment where voting rights were extended, but this ultimately failed. Uh, with the co Compromise of 1877. And then 18, the 1890s, there was an effort to the Lodge Acts to give voting rights, national voting rights to African-Americans, to everyone. And again, when this failed, it's at that moment where the parties and in co leading political figures and the, these norms that we describe were established. And, you know, we, once the most explosive issue was off the agenda, when these existential threats to, to Southern Democrats, for instance, were removed from the agenda, then it was much easier for politicians to get along. Um, you know, so this is clearly a kind of paradox and a dilemma because we're, you know, we're saying these norms are valuable for stable stability. Forbearance, you know, really is a norm that kings needed, you know, so it's, but it's also a norm that helps democracy stabilize. And so we're saying that in the United States, these norms have emerged in periods, it did historically, in a period of racial exclusion. So we're not making the case that, you know, it's, these norms are so important, racial exclusion in some ways is, is a good thing. I mean, we're clearly arguing that, that, that America's second big democratic experiment came in the in 1960s with the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act. And this is a great step forward but at the same time has generated this backlash. So the challenge then becomes, how do we reconcile these things? You know, we, we need norms of forbearance and mutual toleration for democracy to be stable, but it's a, it's a hollow shell without the voting rights uh, that were guaranteed by the Voting Rights Act. So you have a, a stat in here that, that I thought was really striking. You write that the non-white share of the Democratic vote rose from 7% in the 1950s to 44% in 2012. Republican voters, by contrast, were still nearly 90% white into the 2000s. So as the Democrats have increasingly become a party of ethnic minorities, the Republican parties remained almost entirely a party of whites. And I think that's important for two reasons. One is that we have had two parties named the Republican and Democratic parties for a long time in this country. We've had it for as long as anyone currently in this country is alive. And so when you 
read your history books growing up uh, in school, you see the Republican and Democratic parties mentioned over and over again. And I think that can lure us into a sense that it has always been thus. And there's always been some amount of partisanship and some amount of bickering and some amount of anger and, and, and in some cases, real collision. But the nature of the parties has changed. Their literal demographic makeup has changed in a way that has made them much more fundamentally different from each other. And then you also write, and this is from Alan Bromowitz, who's a great political scientist, that in the 1950s, married white Christians were the overwhelming majority, nearly 80% of American voters, and they divided more or less equally between the two parties. By the 2000s, married white Christians constituted barely 40% of the electorate and are now concentrated in the Republican Party. So now both race and religion are polarized by party. And that is a very fundamental form of polarization, the kind of polarization that makes toleration and, and forbearance less likely in societies. To us, that's the crux of the problem. If you go back to the 1960s, Democrats and Republicans disagreed about taxes and spending, but demographically and culturally, they were almost, almost indistinguishable. They were both overwhelmingly white Protestant or white Christian parties. Uh, this, is a, this is prior to the wave of Latin American and Asian immigration, and it was at a time when uh, a, a big chunk of, the, of our African-American citizens were excluded from, from voting. So the electorate, the, citizen, the active citizenry, uh, was overwhelmingly white and Protestant. And they were, uh, evangelicals were slightly more democratic in the night, all the way through the 70s, than Republican. But, but basically, both uh, race and religion were equally distributed across the two parties. Um, so the parties looked the same. If you looked at if you if you saw coverage of a of a national convention on television, the faces were the same. They looked and talked the same. And three changes occurred over over fifty years. The Civil Rights Act, uh, the Voting Rights Act, pushes over the course of a generation, a little more than a generation, white Southerners out of the Democratic Party into the Republican Party overwhelmingly. At the same time that African Americans now given the right to vote uh, are overwhelmingly Democrats. Uh, a massive wave of immigration. The vast majority of those immigrants end up in the Democratic Party. Uh, and as you mentioned, beginning with Reagan, evangelical Christians flock into the Republican Party. So you get this massive demographic shift for several different reasons. Um, but the stars align or the parties align in a way that now the parties are demographically and culturally very, very different. We agree. We think that this is the crux of, of the problem, that, um, that the distance between the parties is so great that representatives, particularly of the, of, of the Republican Party, we could talk about why that is, are increasingly seeing the other side as a threat, as an existential threat, and therefore increasingly willing to abandon basic norms that sustain our democracy for a century. So what's so striking to me about this is, I'm sure you guys are familiar with the Rosenthal pool polarization measures. And to just describe them for, for folks listening, this is a pretty straightforward measure of congressional polarization. But, but what's always been so fascinating about it to me is that there's a period in American history where it stops making sense. Um, the polarization measures just go nuts. And it goes nuts until you add in another measure, which is race. And once you pull race out of it, everything looks normal again. And then at a certain point, the race, racial issues begin to go off of the congressional agenda and then the, the, the measure begins to make sense on its own. And what they show during this period is that for this sort of 
glory age of American congressional action, when we think of things as being depolarized, one, you think about when that was. I mean, it's a period of political assassinations, Vietnam War, the civil rights movement, the the, the women's rights movement. This is not a non-polarized period in American life. And number two, it's to the extent it is depolarized, it is depolarized based on an agreement between the two parties to maintain a form of authoritarian apartheid in the South. And when you kind of face up to that and what absorbing that back into American politics has taken, the current dysfunction doesn't seem so strange. It actually seems almost, I don't want to call anything inevitable, but we seem surprised by it in a way that reflects a forgetting of not our ancient history, but our very recent history, the the, the history that my mother lived through in a way that's just kind of strange. Yeah, that's right. I mean, that's that's one of the reasons we think in this book, we give this historical account, because I think putting all of current developments in this historical context is really useful. But one thing I would add to this, though, I mean, one of the things that we do look at in the book is we look at uh, kind of the history of demagogues in American life. And, you know, going back to Henry Ford and Huey Long, uh, Joe McCarthy, George Wallace, there's, and there's, you know, Gallup poll going back to the 1930s. There is a continuous strand of around 30% of the American electorate who has supported figures like this. And so in that sense, although the politics has become, you know, went through a period of lower polarization, I mean, I don't, I don't, you know, certainly the, the McCarthy years were no, were no picnic. I mean, these were years where there was a genuine demagogue on the scene who had mass public appeal. So what that suggests is that, you know, the threats are always there. Um, for to democracy in, in American history. And one of the things that's changed is how parties deal with this. And so I think the real question, you know, we're political scientists, so we are interested in political parties, but I think political parties, in fact, play this crucial role in navigating this terrain. And, and it's not inevitable that, uh, that parties will be organized in a certain way that makes them vulnerable to these kinds of forces. And so I think there are ways in which our candidates are selected and the kind of details, nuts and bolts of how parties work that can potentially contain this, these kinds of threats and these, this kind of polarization. So I want to hold, I do want to go yeah. to that, but I want to hold yeah. here for one more, one more second, which yeah. is one of the things that is interesting to me about the, the, the polarization and race story is that we had a long period in American life where we were not, I think that people understand and hear polarization as a measure of bitterness or possibly as a measure of ideology. And we had a period of time in American life when we were probably more bitterly divided over more fundamental issues than we are now. I mean, if you think about the things that were being discussed in Congress in the 50s and 60s and 70s, you had the Vietnam War killing huge numbers of Americans. You had much more fundamental shifting of freedom and and power and representation in America than you do today. But you had, for these idiosyncratic reasons of how race had restructured the parties and how Southern Democrats were were trying to hold on to their power and hold on to to what they constructed uh, around racial hierarchy in the South, you had this period where the parties were not heavily ideologically sorted. So you had conservatives in the South and the Democratic Party, you had liberals in the North and the Republican Party. We've talked already here about the ways in which they were more demographically similar. And that absence of layering your party affiliation with whatever tribalism that comes with on top of your ideological affiliation with all the importance of tribalism that comes with it. And then on top of that, your various ultimately demographic and geographic affiliations. That feels really important because we are talking about toleration and forbearance. When you look at the other party, and not only does it have people who look like you, but actually some people who think like you, 
right? If you're a Democrat looking at George Romney and the Republican Party, you may be further to the left than George Romney, but he's not scary or shouldn't, I wouldn't imagine is scary. But today, there's such a gap that in a sense, raising the stakes of politics, raising the aggression of your tactics, raising the sense of apocalypticism in your rhetoric, it's rational. It's reflecting a real change in what you see when you peer across the divide. And it's being demanded by your constituents in many cases. Because they're being, again, I don't quite want to use the word rational here because ultimately you may get into something that, that is irrational, but, but because they are seeing this too. Right. And so, you know, there's this kind of perfect correlation or increasingly perfect correlation between ideology and party. And so if somebody says they're a Republican, it's now you can kind of guess what their views are on things, whereas that was less clear in the past. Uh, if somebody says they're a Democrat, you know, it's kind of clear today what that means than what it meant 50 years ago. And so this alignment of ideology and partisan affiliation, you know, is a dangerous thing in a certain way because it, 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 it heightens the risks of polarization. But you're right, Ezra, the, the late 60s were a period of really intense conflict and uh, in some ways really intense polarization and, and, and crisis. Uh, as you mentioned, political assassinations, massive protests, extreme variation of views. Social scientists wrote about that crisis and worried about that crisis, too. It's probably the last period where social scientists started to, to, to publish stuff about how, you know, America be, could, be, could be facing a pretty tough political challenge. But the difference was, was that it, it didn't flow through the party system. And I'm not sure that's, I, I don't think we know whether that's more or less damaging for democracy, whether it's better or worse, but it is different. It does take on a different dynamic. The two parties didn't go at it. There were things going on in the streets that are not happening today, but the two parties didn't go at each other the way they are now. And that that's what's new. That's probably a good point here to talk about parties a bit, because a, a, a part of the story that you tell that's consistent from other countries into our country is that parties play one mechanism as an organizer of opinions, as sort of a reflector of a, of a certain constituency, and then another, um, as, as you quote a, another political scientist writing, as a filtration device, um, particularly in America where they control the primaries by which we choose presidents, senatorial candidates, etc., they filter. They're supposed to keep the demagogues out. They are, they are a point of um, institutional protection. And that might have been true when there were these smoke-filled back rooms. That might have been true when conventions got decided by the party delegates. But it seems to me that the Republican Party more so, but to some degree both parties, have lost control of their primaries. And not just that, but the idea that they would exert control over their primaries has come to seem completely illegitimate. Um, so if you even think of the Democratic fight after 2016, the Democratic Party, certainly compared to anything that happened you know, back under the, the system of 30 or 40 years ago, it plays basically no role in the primary, certainly not in a choosing sense. Um, but now the idea that it would play any role at all is considered noxious. Um, that makes sense on some level, right? I, I find that intuitively appealing. But on the other hand, when you're looking for parties to to actually be a guardrail, that's that's a difficult that's a difficult needle to thread. Then, yeah. So there's a great old political scientist E. Schottsteiner says if a party can't control its selection of its own candidates, it'll go out of business. Um, you know, and that's that's what parties do in this vision. Uh, is select candidates. And, you know, what that means to say the party decides who the candidates are. Does this mean the voters of the party? Does this mean party leaders? And clearly this is something that's changed. And I, and I think one of our um, goals in this book is to show how this process has changed over time in the United States. 
And, you know, there's there's a way in which, I mean, you, you called it a filtration system. There's a way in which the pre-19... You called it a yeah, filtration yeah, system. We, yeah, right, right, right. Okay, yeah, we called it a filtration system. I would have thought of something yeah. more vivid. Yeah, frankly. well, well another, another... We were rushed. An, yeah, we, right, the filtration system, or what somebody else calls is peer review. And so the, I mean, I'll, I'll... Oh, that's better. Yeah, I'll give the argument, I'll give the argument for this. I mean, the idea is that you have party leaders who worked have worked up close with candidates for many years and seen them in moments of crisis, seen them in moments of triumph and know what their personalities are like and know what they how they'll deal with challenges. And then you have voters who kind of see them on TV and may have a sense of who these guys are, you know, guard, but fleeting kind of impressions. And so the, so the argument was, you know, not that voters don't matter, but that in the selection of the candidates, not, not in the general election, in the selection of the candidates, maybe the guys who've worked with them should have a say. So that this was the logic of this system in a way, and the, the defenders of this pre-1972 system, that, you know, that these guys would could, should have a, should have a say in, in helping. And this this endures, in fact, with the superdelegates, as you're noting in the Democratic Party, the same logic. Um, you know, this system clearly had flaws. I mean, the 1968 convention and Mayor Daley and the kind of bringing out of the police to beat up delegates. I mean, this is an, out, an outrage and, you know, justified the opening up of the system. So the so the question, so all of these systems are double-edged, I guess, is, is the kind of point that we want to make. And so how does one create a system in which uh, candidates are selected who are good candidates, who are not demagogues, uh, who are experienced, but on the other hand, that we, they, the system has to have some legitimacy. And so that's a bit of the challenge that we're facing right now, I think, for ex- in the democratic and really in, selection in, process. In democracies throughout the world, in, in Latin America, which is the region that I study uh, throughout Western Europe, there is a growing skepticism of political elites, growing, in many cases, hostility towards political elites. So the idea of party leaders as gatekeepers ha- has, has, faces a real legitimacy problem. But Daniel's absolutely right. They're the For all of its very real shortcomings and costs, particularly in terms of exclusion, the old system, the pre-1972 system, in fact, had a perfect record of keeping demagogues out. And that's not a small thing. Why do you think that skepticism of political elites as gatekeepers is happening so broadly? I think you see it in Europe. You're saying you see it in Latin America. Interestingly, you don't seem to see it in China, right? There, there, there are models where it's going in the other direction and that's being viewed quite favorably. But but what do you ascribe the the deepening mistrust to? I mean, that that's one of the key social science questions of the day that I don't think we figured out uh, anything remotely like the answer to. I, there, there are a bunch of things going on. I'll point to one, at least in the West, deepening inequality. Um, the gap between the, the median voter, between the, the lower middle class and the elite broadly, not just political elites and not just economic elites, but the top 20% people who live in Brookline, Massachusetts, like I do, the gap between those two sectors of society really throughout the West, everywhere, Sweden, Germany, UK, here, has expanded massively and is generating uh, a, something between skepticism and resentment towards that elite. And it's it's creating or expanding, to a degree, the constituency for populism, right? Populists are candidates, among other things, who basically promise in one language or another to take a wrecking ball to the establishment. Uh, and that that kind of appeal has, that that is much greater appeal to voters in the West than it did 30, 40 years ago. Are, are we sure, uh, what, what is the evidence base that 
inequality is a driver of it. And, and I say this is somebody who is very concerned about mm-hmm. economic inequality. But when I've looked into this and, and, and when I've tried to look at it, it, it's not obvious to me that you see more of this mistrust in one societies that are more unequal. Um, you seem to have, there seem to be a good number of societies been experiencing pretty high economic growth, particularly in Eastern Europe that are seeing some of the very same trends um, when you would expect there to be more uh, comfort given that they've been doing well. Poland, I think, is a pretty good example. They just had a 60,000-person neo-Nazi march, if I'm not misremembering. But they've been the strongest economy in Europe for quite some time now. I wonder sometimes when I hear the economic story told, because we all agree that inequality is bad, because we all agree that median wage stagnation and a lot of these problems are bad— I think there's a comfort in ascribing things we don't like to things we also don't like, because then there's a real, well, if you could just implement my preferred economic program, you'd get to the other side of this. Uh, and I don't know. I, I'm, Let me, I'm skeptical I, yeah, of it. So, so another another kind of factor that I think plays plays a role is, you know, we, we sometimes forget that political parties are inventions. Politicians invented political parties. It's a form of organization that's, you know, 150 years old, the modern political parties. They developed in a particular environment. They developed certain organizational tools to mobilize voters in a certain kind of media environment and certain kind of demographic environment. And these are, the, or it's an, as an organization, political parties have changed over time. Society has changed. And, and so my, my sense is, and this is, this is a kind of hand-waving answer here, but I think there's something to this, that, that parties are, are creatures in motion and they need to cope with the new with with the times and there needs to be new ways for parties to d- connect to voters in ways that take advantage of social media that l- can you know so for parties of the left how do they survive without union organization you know they did very well when there was robust union organization but when they no longer have the organizations to to tap into voters there's a way in which it's a kind of organizational and almost technological problem that political parties face and so you know we, we study parties but i think that you know in some ways the burden is on parties if they want to win voters they need to and they they want to you know have certain types of candidates win elections they need to come up with ways of doing this and so i think it's technological these are technological and organizational challenges so, so the technological piece of this seems very important to me because it is that is a factor that is changing we can see a changing in virtually all of these countries simultaneously. I'm in the media. I can tell you that there is more media. Parties have less control over it than they ever did. I mean, when you go back to the beginning of political parties, at least in America, but I think this is true in other countries too, they often controlled media. I mean, we have tons of papers that are still called the such and such Democrat or the so-and-so Republican. I mean, there's a reason for that. Um, These were literally partisan outlets. And as I understand the power parties have often controlled, it has frequently been a power over information. And even when you think about money, what is money buying you? Well, money is buying you the ability to get information in front of voters. And when I just think of, say, this last election in America, but 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 it's true elsewhere too, the party's control over who you are hearing about is not what it once was. And in fact, you've, we've moved into this informational ecosystem that what it prizes isn't even broad support. What it prizes is is intense support, right? That the algorithms are all tuned for engagement. So, I mean, very early on, we began noticing at Vox, as everybody else did simultaneously, that when you wrote about Bernie Sanders, it went to the top of Reddit and you got a ton of traffic. Donald Trump similarly was a a traffic jackpot. And so you you began seeing very quickly coverage of the candidates who, who were resonating 
if you had been running a newspaper 30 years ago, 40 years ago, you wouldn't even have really known which coverage was resonating. I mean, you get a little bit of a sense through letters, and but it's a much less direct and a much more imperfect measure. So, I mean, it's something that seems to me to be upending all this is that there's been a real loss of control over information, not just on the part of parties, but even on the part of editors, of journalists. I mean, we are all much more driven by social media, by the the sort of whims and rages of the crowd than, than we have been before. I'm not saying it's bad because I think a lot of the way that we did it before had had terrible, terrible drawbacks, right? Just asking the question, what do white men think is important is a bad way to run your, your media architecture. But nevertheless, that, that feels to me like a, a bad space for parties. Yeah, or they have to figure out how to cope with it. I mean, that's... If know, they can. Yeah, if they can. But that, you know, if and if they don't, then, you know... What's left? And we have to figure out another way to organize electoral politics because modern democracy was founded by and run by political parties. So parties are going to have to adapt or we're going to have to figure out another way to make democracy work. But let me let me ask you about the other side of this, because the the mystery of this period, uh, Julia Zari, who's a political scientist out in Wisconsin, has a wonderful line where she says the central I'm going to paraphrase it so it might be slightly off. But this is a central fact of American politics right now is that we have weak parties and strong partisanship. So we're, we're talking about the breakdown of parties, and you can very much imagine a world where parties are breaking down, and as a result, partisanship is breaking down. The Republican Party is becoming a, a less powerful institution, and so, sure, people are less uh, compelled by it, but they're also more willing to cross over and vote for the Democrat, and vice versa. But the remarkable thing about this period, at least in America, I don't know enough about other countries to say if it's happening there too, is that the, the parties are breaking down. They're losing control of their uh, primary processes and others. They, they have less credibility with legitimacy with their own voters. But the voting behavior has become much more partisan. So Donald Trump consolidates the Republican Party at virtually the same level Mitt Romney does before him, even though Trump is an outsider of the Republican Party, a much more controversial kind of figure, had much less internal support from the party. And programmatically, it was actually quite different. And this seems very, I mean, this seems to me to be the central way right now that demagogues can enter, at least into American politics, that if parties have lost control of primaries, but once you win the primary, you nevertheless get the entirety of the party support and voting base, that means that you have a chaotic selection system that then legitimizes anybody who wins it. And it does not seem to be it does not seem likely to me that Trump will be the last person to to overwhelm that system. I mean, this seems like a structural problem we're now facing. Yeah, and I guess I, I would say, though, I mean, I, you know, this may be rearranging the chairs on the, on the sinking Titanic or something, but I think there is a way in which parties in Europe are not in in such dire shape. I mean, people often compared Brexit to the rise of Trump, and there's this kind of rebellion against the establishment, and Boris Johnson in some way was like Do- Donald Trump. But what's interesting is Boris Johnson never didn't become prime minister. Theresa May became prime minister, and she was very much a creature of the party. And so I think in that sense, I mean, the party continues in some places to be more well-organized and more and contain these kind of populist impulses to, to kind of overthrow the entire system. I'm sure your listeners are sitting here thinking, well, that's great for Britain, but what about us? Uh, and, you know, I think that the, the point is, you know, we should we can maybe learn from other countries. We can learn about how parties are reaching out to voters and, and creative ways of maintaining discipline, parliamentary system and so on. I mean, there's lots of differences. Well, I was going to ask you yeah. about that. Is, yeah. is part of the reason that's true in the UK that has a parliamentary yeah, system? Yeah, I think so. I mean, the parties, parties have much more control over who's on the party 
lists. And so, I mean, the, just the, the organization of the parties are are, are the stri- stricter discipline. But I think that, that, you know, the point is, again, we can maybe learn something from, you know, the, what that suggests is that these populist waves can be overcome. And I would argue, you know, we go through periods of unrest and instability and, you know, Britain may get through this and, you know, 15 years from now, the parties will still be okay and maybe we'll return to a period of economic growth and things will be just fine. So the point is how to get through the periods of crisis. And the thing that makes me nervous, I, you know, I remember after Brexit and and uh, being in Europe and there was, you know, people were saying, this is great. You know, all the old parties are being overthrown. You know, this is, these parties are so corrupt. Politicians are corrupt. Let's get rid of them. We don't need the old parties. And I just remember, you know, being horror struck because when you look to the past, which is our only basis for saying anything about the future, when parties decay, democracy's in trouble. That, you know, maybe the new social media environment changes the stability, you know, what, whether parties are viable or not. But the historical record isn't so great. Without parties, we're in trouble. There is this internet comic that went around a bit after the 2016 election that was just somebody standing in room and just said, I want things to be different. And it was like this panel kind of whirlwind uh, activity. And then in the third panel, just everything's broken. And the president says, oh, no. Right, right, right. (laughs) And and there does seem to me to be a little bit of that, at least right now. I want to ask you about something that is happening specifically in America, specifically related to our political system that worries me. We keep talking about how democracies die. We keep using the word democracy here. Nevertheless, if you look at our political system, the president won fewer votes than the person who's not president. The Senate is controlled by a party that won fewer total Senate votes than the party that does not control the Senate. And um, the House, I do not believe that's true of the House right at the second, but has been true recently. And I believe, if I'm not wrong, that the current estimates are Democrats would have to win to lead Republicans by somewhere between five and eight percentage points of the vote to have a majority, right? If they, if they, if they just win more votes, they do not get a majority. They need a huge victory. And the, the, the underlying trends is some of this is gerrymandering other things, but that's not true for the presidency or the Senate. And the underlying trends that have done this, the, the sort of systems preference for small states, et cetera, are getting worse given our migration patterns. What happens to this country if we increasingly have power being wielded by a political coalition that is in a smaller minority? I mean, the fact of the matter is 40% of presidential elections since 2000, since the turn of the millennium, have been won by the person who lost the popular vote. That seems unstable to me. That seems like a like a legitimacy crisis that, if it continues, will will be dangerous. Yeah, just to just to uh, add an explanation point to your to your intervention. Imagine the 2018 election. Imagine 2019, if the Democrats win big, in, in terms of the, the popular vote in this midterm election, win by six seven points, solid solid victory, and win neither the Senate nor the House. They gain seats in the House. Don't capture the House. Don't capture the Senate. Entirely plausible, right? It's very, very plausible that in 2018, a very intense, very polarizing election, Democrats win and capture neither House. And it could happen with the presidency then in 2020 again. You could have right. it happen three times in a row. Right. What so, do you think that would do to American democracy? Um, I'm not in the business of forecasting. I, <laughs> I don't know. It, it, it won't be good. It won't be good. I mean, we've got... So take, let me take a step back. So it, it'll it'll cause a, de- a legitimacy crisis among a, a different group, right? The Those over the last 10, 15 years who have been most disaffected, and I'm going to make some sweeping generalizations here, but I think they're largely true, mm-hmm. are um, sort of Tea Party voters. They are not college-educated, uh, often white, often smaller-town folks. Millennials are ur- uh, urban-educated 
folks have some signs of disaffection, but they're doing pretty well. Even with the economic crisis, 2008, 2009, my neighbors in, in Boston and Brookline are doing, are doing pretty well. And those are the folks, I think particularly younger, relatively well-educated urban voters are, are I think, the, the, the voters who are likely to be really, really disenchanted by that sort of outcome. Um, maybe a lot of them, maybe some of them voted for Sanders, not all of them. So it'll be a new group that, that, that really sort of moves into a legitimacy crisis. Now, the, the institutions, I, the institutions that, that, are, that are causing or at least contributing the problem now are institutions obviously we've had for a very long time, in some cases from the beginning. They didn't cause problems, again, because of the way our parties were aligned, because of the, the, the fact that both Democrats and Republicans were strong in these underpopulated states. So some of these, maybe Wyoming was Republican, but Alabama was Democrat in the 1950s. Um, and th really throughout almost all of our history, um, there wasn't this, this, this sorting in which Republicans do well in underpopulated states and Democrats do well in heavily populated states. Uh, to my knowledge, that was never for any significant period of time the case. So you didn't get this kind of distortion. You could you can talk about how it's not very democratic that Wyoming has so much influence, but it didn't have a partisan effect. Now it's having a systematic, consistent, partisan effect. It's benefiting Republicans and hurting Democrats. And yet it's really hard to change because institutional change, one, it's very difficult in the United States because these are very, very old institutions, but institutional change almost invariably, given our system, requires some level of bipartisan consensus. How do you get Republicans to agree to institutional change when they're benefiting from it? So it's really hard to imagine the kind of electoral reform that would do away with this problem. Yeah, I, I was going to just add something to this. I mean, this is, you know, when this has happened in the past where you've had these major kind of divergences between the real electoral power of groups and um, and their re and, and their appearance in parliaments. I mean, so I'm thinking, you know, historically in the 19th century with industrialization, where there's mass movements of people and the electoral systems are frozen and move huge movement of people from the countrysides to the cities. And again, I'm thinking of Europe. There's and there are like you know before World War One, around World War One, it's at those moments that these systems have come into crisis and major electoral reforms and constitutional reforms come about to cope with this. Um, the quite, you know, so you get the adoption of proportional representation across Europe in response to exactly this kind of disjuncture between, between electoral geography and institutions. The, the challenge, of course, as Steve notes in the U.S., is that it's very hard to change institutions. You know, we haven't had any, you know, constitutional amendments in a long time. You know, our constitution in many ways is frozen. There have been periods in American history where there's lots of, you know, opening up of the constitution. You know, I'm, I'm very nervous about this kind of thing as I think a lot of people are. The idea of having, you know, I know there's groups calling for constitutional conventions of what would get changed, you know, in the process. And so I'm, I, I for one, am very re resistant and reluctant to think we should be altering the constitution. But these are the kinds of moments that generate major institutional changes. So the, the thing that worries me even more about this is, the, as you guys just said, the prospects for institutional change are, are low when one side is benefiting from it, from, from the status quo. But they seem to me to be worse when one side is then using that power to further entrench these dynamics. So a minority that is beginning to lose power, but is nevertheless in power, 
has a lot of incentive to alter the rules of the game. And here, let's not talk about like democracy totally dying. I mean, we can we can stop short of that. But obviously, gerrymandering is part of this. And and something that I would just note: you have a situation right now where there was a Supreme Court vacancy that would have swung the court that opened during the previous Democratic president. Uh, Republicans did not allow anyone to even be considered. Then after the election, the White House was taken by the person who lost the popular vote. If Hillary Clinton had taken office, she would have been able to to name a replacement to to, to uh, Antonin Scalia. And then the gerrymandering case that is currently going up to the Supreme Court and, and, and being considered by the court would be pretty sure to end with a rejection of gerrymandering. But instead, there's a much better chance it will end with an affirmation of it. And you can go down the list. I mean, there are these voter ID laws that are coming out. Uh, you all talk about the the voter commission that, that, that Trump had formed, and he's since disbanded because there was enough opposition to it. But it looked like that might attempt to use Republican power to uh, push away um, some of the, the the voting rights we have. Obviously, the Republican Supreme Court gutted the Voting Rights Act a couple of years back. So it doesn't seem to me to be just the fact that Republicans, in this case, will not want to see change happen. In fact, the more they get threatened, the more the rules are being changed to make the most of what votes they have for as long as they have them. And, and again, that feels to me like a legitimacy crisis thing. When I, when I get um, reader emails and so on, the sense of unfairness in the system among Democrats is very, very profound. And they're not wrong. And, and I worry that it's going to get worse because the dynamics are going to become more threatening to the Republican Party, given the Republican Party's demographics. But they have the power to do something about it. And given that, it's going to be hard not to use it. Do you want to talk a little bit in this context about North Carolina? I mean, North Carolina is a prime example of, of exactly what you're talking about. It's in some ways, North Carolina is a microcosm in the United States. It's a very purple state. It's a state that's changing demographically in large part due to, due to immigration. So you have a, a Democratic Party that is um, very diverse and growing slowly in strength and a Republican Party that had been dominant not for very long because Democrats had dominated North Carolina for, for more than a century, but that had been pretty dominant since, since the 90s. Um, and loses an election and uh, it feels threatened and uh, carries out what has been described as a, as a legislative coup, changing at the last minute in a, in a lame duck legislative session, a bunch of rules to handicap the, the new government. It's a prime example of what we call in the book constitutional hardball. And, and you're right, that, that sort of behavior is most likely to be carried out by, by groups in power who, looking forward, see their power diminishing or threatening. Um, and we're, we're in that situation nationally. And that, I think, is precisely why over the last 10 or 15 years, you've seen in something like 30 states some sort of toughening of voter ID laws. The only plausible explanation for tougher voter ID laws is to dampen the votes uh, or to, to dampen turnout among who we know are Democratic voters, lower income minority voters. That's an effort to tilt the playing field against the Democrats. So it's exactly what you say. Those in power using their power to not necessarily overturn the rules, but at least tweak or reform the rules to entrench themselves. How far they can go, I think is, is, is an open question. I mean, they, this is not Hungary where the opposition collapsed 
and where the the, the constituency for the for opposition is pretty is pretty weak. The Democrats are still a strong party. There are a number of actors in in American society who uh, at least have the resources to resist, whether it's in the courts, maybe in the streets, in the media, in a bunch of different arenas, this kind of behavior. So it's not, I don't think we're fated to become hungry or turkey. You're probably right that it's more a legitimacy crisis than a democratic crisis, at least right now. I don't, I don't really know how to speculate about how deep that will be or what its implications will be. I think one thing that I worry about, and I think we're seeing signs of it right now, um, again, we, we focus a lot in our book on, on democratic norms and norms of forbearance. I think increasingly as democratic voters perceive this unfairness that you point to, democratic voters are going to put pressure on democratic politicians to engage in hardball, to fight like Republicans. If we're getting screwed over, if we're getting sucker punched over and over again, we sure as hell better use every means necessary to fight back. And I think that's exactly the debate we're seeing. Um, and it's not, it, it's, it's easy to understand. Um, it's, it, it's frankly not, uh, not easy to argue against. Um, but we've seen this spiral of norm erosion in other countries before, and it rarely ends well. So I'd like to talk about that for a bit. Sure. So we're talking just a couple of days after Democrats drove a shutdown of the government and then, then it opened back up. So it was not a long shutdown, but this was something new for Democrats. And when you looked at the way it was being discussed within the party, it was discussed in a very explicit way. Look, Republicans do this. They did it to us a bunch of times. And it wasn't just retaliation. It was actually how can Democratic politicians uh, stand up there on stages with dreamers? How can they ask for the votes of dreamers? How can they say this is something they support, but they will not go as far as Republicans do in trying to, to, to push for something this important? And so the boundaries, it seems to me, of what political commitment means are, are, are being expanded on the Democratic side in the aftermath of them being expanded on the Republican side. And that's very hard to put back in the bottle. It's very hard, it seems to me, to, to make a case within a political party or to a political party that they should not follow where the other side is going. Two points. One, if the Republicans are doing it, we should do it because we're going to lose every time if we don't. Number two, the issues are very important. So the ends justify the means, you know. So the dreamers, this is an important issue that people, including myself, feel passionately about. But we have to stop and think, you know, from the other side, you know, Republicans feel very strongly about their issues as well. And they feel these are light, you know, abortion is a life and death issue. Um, we'll, we'll, you know, we'll go all out to protect the right to life. You know, this is a life and death issue. I think similarly for Democrats, we'll go all out to protect the rights of dreamers. Um, and, you know, so the substantive issues matter a lot. But I guess the, the point, the, the case we're making and the case that's hard to make, as Steve says, is that rules matter, procedures matter. Um, and, you know, if you go if you go this route in the long run, we keep saying the warning is that you'll end up with neither. You'll, ni you'll end up with neither the norms nor the substantive outcome that you want. So, you know, that, you know, under what conditions would constitutional hardball be justified? I mean, this is a kind of abstract question. How long should we forbear? How long should Democratic citizens and Democratic politicians forbear? At what point should they give up on forbearance? You know, and this is a very difficult question, but what, you know, one bit of an answer we kind of have come to is that if one's going to abandon democratic norms, there needs to be a way in which, uh, the, if you're going to use extraordinary measures, you need to have extraordinary coalitions behind it. So this needs to, 
you know, there, there needs to be an effort to, to give them legitimacy. Bro, you know, broader segments of the population need to support this. There needs to be bipartisanship behind extreme measures. I mean, that's maybe one answer to this. But in general, we just want to warn people about the danger of this spiral. Are you familiar with the the book Finite and Infinite Games? I don't think so. Yeah. That's interesting because I thought I, I thought there was a piece of your of your book that was referencing it. So I want to talk about that. So I, I've been reading this book recently. Um, it was recommended uh, on my show a couple weeks ago by Jaron Lanier, and, and it's this kind of interesting, very 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 strange book uh, about the difference between games that you are playing to win and have sort of punctuated beginnings and endings. And games are the point is to continue play forever. And you actually have a line, which is why I asked this, where you say, think of democracy as a game that we want to keep playing indefinitely. To ensure future rounds of the game, players must refrain from either incapacitating the other team or antagonizing them to such a degree they refuse to play again tomorrow. And this is the way I've begun thinking about some of these questions, which is, it is very hard to know when you are switching from the finite games of American politics to what is supposed to be the infinite game of American democracy. It is very hard to know when what you're looking at is threatening that. So I was just having this conversation with somebody today. Do government shutdowns threaten that? I mean, you know, they're a big deal, but they're not such a big deal. Debt ceiling breaches probably do threaten that. But 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 this seems to me to be something that is very hard right now and is very related to your idea of forbearance for, for either side to deal with. When the stakes get this high, when the feeling of threat is significant, to say, well, let's hold back because we're trying to protect the system for people 50 years from now is not very persuasive because the stakes are literally life and death now. That the the, the rhetoric of the rhetoric of working to, to, to of holding back to protect democracy, as somebody who's tried to use it at times, it's a very weak rhetoric. It it is very hard to uphold it in, in an argument. It's hard for us and imagine politicians. Yeah. Imagine a politician who has to look forward to a primary. Uh, I mean, we, we often think of forbearance, and in fact, in, in, in current political discourse, forbearance is often, among Democrats in particular, viewed as weakness, right? The, the Republican bullies are, are doing this stuff, and, and we're just backing down uh, when we should, be, we should be fighting like Republicans. But in fact, forbearance takes a lot of political courage, right? It means telling your very angry base, legitimately angry base, that you're not going to do what they what what they want. You're going to, you know, act to, 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 to defend institutions or uh, for the good of the country rather than this very meaningful, very important policy goal. It's, it's much harder for politicians than for us. And you're right. We have trouble talking about it. We have trouble making the case for maintaining a prioritization of process over substance. And if we can't do it, imagine someone whose career hinges on this. It's almost impossible. Republicans had a hard time doing it. Uh, with the rise of the Tea Party, and Democrats are now having a hard time doing it. So I think that's a good note to end on. So let me ask you both the the, the question I usually ask in the podcast is I ask guests to to recommend three books that, that have influenced them that they would recommend. But since there are two of you, I'll ask you each to recommend two, beginning with you, Daniel. Aha. Uh-huh. Yeah, so I'm going to recommend some fiction, actually. Excellent. Um, uh, Leon Feuchtwanger's book, uh, novel written in 1934, The Opermanns, which is written in the height of the, the, in the midst of- What was it called? The Opermann, O-P-P-E-R-M-A-N, which is about a Jewish German family living in Berlin. It's a work of fiction written by a German Jew in 1934, describing what life was like in 1934. 
and and you know it's really just a gripping novel of a democracy in collapse, and so that's really affected me a great deal. Um, that's I'll let Steve suggest one, and then I'll think of another. So J. Morgan Couser's The Shaping of Southern Politics. I'm someone who I thought I was reasonably aware of the trajectory of, of, of U.S. history. I certainly knew about the failure of Reconstruction and of Southern authoritarianism, but that book really opened my eyes to just how extraordinarily undemocratic and, and what, a, what an ex- a historically important rollback of democracy occurred in the U.S. South in the late, the latter decades of the, of the, of the 19th century. Robert Caro's book on the, the Lyndon Johnson, and in particular his rise, I think it's the first volume about his life in Austin and his rise to power um, in in the Senate. I mean, this also helped us appreciate, helped me appreciate the the kind of norm, you know, the norms of the Senate, and to understand, you know, the in some ways the seem, you know, the, with political scientists have a kind of particular admiration. It seems like often too much admiration for wire pullers and kind of, you know, the the smoke filled back rooms. And so I think, you know, you come away from that book with a kind of picture of it that's not as not as clean as as is often portrayed by political scientists. So I really enjoyed that. And I'll recommend an old academic book uh, by someone whose politics I don't uh, much share, and that's Sam Huntington's Political Order in Changing Societies, mm. published in the late 1960s. It's a book that that shows us really clearly the importance of strong institutions and some of the costs of abandoning those institutions. Uh, the U- U.S. institutions, we talked about some uh, of, the, of the limitations and the problems with our institutions. But when you begin to corrode them and assault them and weaken them, things get much worse. Stephen Levitsky and Daniel Ziblatt, thank yeah, you very much. Thank you. Uh, thank you to Stephen Levitsky and Daniel Ziblatt for being here. That, that was great. Their book is great. I really do recommend picking it up uh, if you have not. Thank you to Bert Pinkerton, my producer. The Ezra Klein Show is a Vox Media Podcast Network production, and we'll be back next week. 